The following content contains adult subject matter, including descriptions of sexual violence, and is intended for adult consumption only. It may not be suitable for all audiences, therefore discretion is advised. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. When I think about Smokey and Ali, even outside of, you know, my desire to only remember them, Mm-hmm. In their beauty, it's like they they were that, you know, in a lot of ways. It's like it's how most people that knew them would recall them, you know, mm-hmm. if not everyone. And I think that that's why I had such a responsibility to preserve that, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that as much as my record is about grief, it's also about, about, love. about love and it's about the preservation of, of beauty and it's the preservation of their beauty. Abolition is healing, accountability, transformation, community, constructive system, resources. Abolition's hot. Creating <laughs> systems that do not perpetuate harm. It's a belief in a better world. This is Abolition X. What's the big old deal, y'all? This is the last episode of season one of Abolition X, the show where we bring abolition to the culture. I'm Richie Reseda. I'm Indigo Mateo. I'm Vic Mensa. And today we are talking about grief. Grief, the deep sorrow that accompanies the loss of someone or something foundational to one's life. It can be life-altering and affect one's mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual health. Grief is one of the most painful human experiences. Ignored, it can damage our mental, emotional, and physical health. It can lead to harmful decision-making and contribute to cycles of trauma and violence. Yet, We have no system or shared culture on how to even address grief. Because of capitalism, it's often brushed aside to make room for quote-unquote business as usual. How does that affect us? How does that affect our communities? What's possible if we create spaces to process our grief, especially in communities that are trapped in those cycles? Today, we'll be talking to our good friend Mustafa. He's a singer, a songwriter, and a poet from Toronto, His EP, When Smoke Rises, is about his grief for friends he lost to gun violence, including his friend Smoke Dog. We'll also be talking to Smoke Dog's older brother, Uule, who will be calling him from prison. Let's get into it. I already like, honestly, just even like having this conversation, I already feel like some shit in my chest. Mm -hmm, Same. Like just a little tightness, Mm because I think of how little we talk about grief and how little we like actually surface the grief under each of our skins Mm -hmm. like in our chest like that's how I feel it a lot yeah I wish we had a holiday for grief Hmm. or at least like I need it at least like once a week but I'm just in a particular place in my grief but I just think of the brilliance of the indigenous people of Mexico to have a holiday for grief in Day of the Dead and the way that the colonizers came here and demonized that. Mm. But it's like, we don't really, in this culture, we don't really have a place for our grief. Sometimes I'll just be in rooms with people and look around and just wonder what they're grieving. The hallmark of the Black community is uh, transmuting grief. Hmm. And that's that grief is basically the uh, genesis of much of our work creation and uh, Mm -hmm. what we offer to the world, you know, because we've obviously been impacted with so much generational grief and then we have it in our blood. Mm -hmm. And uh, without grief, you don't get blues music. You don't get jazz music. There's no hip hop. There's no James Baldwin. There's no Maya Angelou. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And also, grief will create James and mm-hmm. Musa and 88, mm-hmm. you know, and Richie and me and, you know, people that are locked up for the rest of their life because of how they either processed or didn't process their grief. Mm. What's y'all's, like, first, like, conceptual, like, understanding of, like, either death or loss or even, yeah, grief? My first really deep experience with grief, for real, was not over death. It was getting incarcerated. Mm. And it was a slow process to get to the place where I, I could even accept that I was incarcerated and that I was going to be incarcerated for quite some time. Because of the case that I had, technically, based on what I actually did under the law, I could have done some months in the county jail. So when I first got arrested, even though I was fighting 150 years to life, I had just told myself that story over and over. Like, technically what I did illegal, the the legal penalty is a year in the county jail, which ends up being like four months. Mm-hmm. And I remember I went to court for like almost a year before they even offered us any deal. And the first deal that they offered me was nine years. Ooh. And at the time I was 19, so... I thought back like nine years ago, I was 10. Like yeah. I can't, I couldn't fathom nine years of being, time. That, yeah, of being in that terrible place. I just couldn't even fathom that. I couldn't accept that for myself. And I just went back to the dorm, came back from court and I just laid on my bed and put my sheet over my face and just cried. The first big loss that I had to adjust to was the loss of, my youth mm-hmm. and my dreams and, and all the, you know, visions I had for what my youth would be and what my life would be. That was very, very difficult for me. Mm. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. How about you, Vic? You know, it's probably the loss of uh, my big brother, Dare, when I was 17. But mm. something younger and more benign also occurs to me. From when I was five years old, Mm. I, um, like many other young black kids, was just devalued, you know, and I was put into a developmentally challenged class Mm. for people with all type of disabilities, of which I don't have any, you know, so I was upset about that. And Mm. then um, during the school year, I got kicked out or asked to leave or all I know is that I had to leave, you know, mm. and uh, all my friends were there. And I just remember crying myself to sleep, you know. Mm. That's probably the youngest time I can remember, like, mm. really feeling, like, heartbroken, you know. Mm. It did impact me, though, you know, because I found recently a notebook from a year after that from when I was in first grade. And, uh, you know, in that notebook, I'm writing things like, I hate myself. I want to kill myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other day I was like meditating and I feel like I connected the dots between those. You know, just thinking about my experience in school and in public school. And I was upset, you know what I mean? I was always fighting people, teachers, and it, you know, really was set in motion from that experience in mm-hmm. kindergarten. Mm. Ooh, and then mm-hmm. 
I like how you shared like how you recently were meditating and you're like connecting dots from like that moment of grief in your childhood that has impacted your life. Like, mm-hmm. I think that's so indicative of like grief is something that we keep kind of going back to. It's not a process that is like there's a start and there's an end. Mm-hmm. It's like there's always going to be more information from an experience of loss. Yeah. And I feel like that's really what healing grief looks like. We don't get to see examples of that. So I just want to shout that out too, like that meditation practice that you have, Vic, mm-hmm. and the way that you're able to connect those dots, you know, 20 years later. That's the healing of grief. Mm-hmm. What about you, Indigo? A thing that I didn't realize I was grieving for a very long time is the grief of losing my quote-unquote innocence. Mm. Like my body being like investigated sexually as a Mm. young child through like a a traumatic experience. Like that, I think, caused me to lose a sense of like, you know, my sexuality being for me Mm. and instead being like offered up or like poked or prodded. And that's interesting because that happened when I was four and I lived all the way up until I was 14 until I like remembered that that was like something that I struggled, like something that happened. Mm. So then when I was 14, I was like, I went through like a phase of like grieving and like I would be very emotional and I couldn't tell anyone about it. And um, yeah, I I realized that like, you know, grief, it comes, it, it comes in waves. That's what people say. Like it can come right back and sometimes it's Mm -hmm. a small wave and sometimes it's like a a tsunami and that shit can take out everything. Um, I think like we often tend to feel shame when the tsunami is the feeling Mm -hmm. and when it's like, bro, I can't even go to work. I can't even Mm -hmm. go to dance practice. I can't even speak without my throat chakra like closing up or without like my voice shaking. I think like the knee jerk reaction, especially here, is like, yeah, dude, you got to get over that shit. Yeah. Like, that happened how many years ago, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. there's this, like, this shame around, like, the time limit that we each get to grieve. Mm -hmm. I resent that. Yeah, there's no place for it in this society. We don't have, like, a set place for grief. So we just hold it, and we just hold it. And it leads us to not be our best selves because we're not healthy. Like, it literally scientifically affects our mental, emotional, and physical health. And then we just get caught in the cycles of oftentimes creating more grief. Everybody doesn't go out and, and, you know, hurt somebody because they're grieving. But it does stop us from being our most healthy, lively, fulfilled selves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you said, Vic, like a lot of people who are incarcerated, like more than I think we know, like possibly committed their crimes or were living in a line of decision-making that was, like, directly impacted by unprocessed grief, unseen grief. Yeah. Or even unfelt grief. In prison, if you have a close family member that dies, they call you to the office and they tell you, and then sometimes they put you in the hole. Damn. You literally get punished for losing somebody because they're afraid that you'll act out based on getting, you know, that news. I, I had actually just first got to prison from the county jail. I was incarcerated for a wrong. year. That is so wrong. I'm sorry mm. for interrupting. It's okay. I, that is it's like, okay. that's the moment where you need your people. Right. Like, that's the moment where you need sunshine, where you need, like, the elements and the wind and the breeze and, like, all that shit. And just to be in a dark room by yourself with your thoughts and your loss, like, that is torture. That's psychological warfare. 
Absolutely. But please continue. I was just saying, I had lost my grandfather when I was incarcerated for like a year. I remember they called my name over the intercom. They told me to report to the program office. I got there and um, the counselor was like, hey, I'm just here to tell you that, that your grandfather died. And I was like, okay. And he was like, you okay? You don't need to go to the hole or anything? You're not going to hurt nobody? Like he was kind of saying like it was a joke. And I was like, no, I'm okay. He's like, all right, go back to yourself. Damn. And um, yeah, it was a deeply isolating experience. And, you know, it just taught me like if I'm going through some real shit in here, everybody in prison already knows this, but you just can't let them people know because they're going to criminalize you for it. Mm. I feel like that's a really relatable experience, like hiding your grief. Hiding yeah. it and having to only enter a sacred space with yourself. But actually, in, in many cultures, like grief is a community practice. And, and I'm looking at you, Vic, because I'm like, I know that like, you know, especially on the continent. Yeah, my grandmother's funeral in, uh, in Ghana was definitely like an entire celebration of life. It was beautiful, you know, dancing. Uh, they were like driving all through the streets and had a whole procession. But just the funeral itself was like, transformative, you know, because mm. the vast majority of funerals I've been to, especially at that time, you know, I was 21 or something when mm. my grandmother passed. And so all the funerals I had been to in my life had been mm. teenagers, you mm. know, teenagers or people in their 20s. But like to see them really celebrate in life, it was definitely a beautiful experience. What's y'all's experience with grief, like across different ways of losing people? Like, I feel like there's, like, the grief of, like, you know, when someone older dies and it's like, okay, well, like, all right, at least they lived a long life and you can kind of be, like, they're an ancestor now and, and that's, like, kind of the understood process. But there's also, like, when people, like, die by suicide or when people are taken, like, when their life is literally cut short, like, where I feel mm. like that grief, like, tends to hit different and, and it can... And it can devastate people in like different ways mm -hmm. that I feel like it's it's more um, likely for that grief to result in like harmful decisions or even self-harmful decisions. Yeah. Sorry, I know I'm talking really slow and weird. This is just, it's just very emotional for me to talk about this whole topic, but especially that point Indigo because it's okay. statistically, but also just in my life and experience, like black people, we don't get to live to see that more peaceful form of grief that you're talking about. A lot of black folks, we don't get to live to be old. Mm -hmm. That's just statistically true that we just die younger. And that's way more painful to me than, than the other form of grief. You know, like my Jewish grandfather, he died. He was 84 years old. It was sad. I was in prison. I couldn't be there. It was sad. But it wasn't the same as when my best friend died at 25 years old. Completely unexpected. My father died, 53 years old. Our friend Ella died, like yeah. 37 years old, you know? Yeah. Um, just like that part, seeing people die younger because they're black um, and all of the health things that come with being black and, and the conditional, you know, being in, in the adverse conditions, black people that we live in and the violence that we endure that shit is very, very hard for me. Every time, every time a young black person dies, even like in the culture, like people I didn't even know, mm -hmm. you know, 
Um, when I see young black people die, it just it just hurts in a very different way because it was avoidable. That kind of grief hits different. That it does something different to our bodies. It reminds me of what Doctor Amina Matthews said on the Streets episode. Mm-hmm. She said, "When I see a baby with a chopper ready to shoot, I see somebody who doesn't have hope. They lost hope. Mm-hmm. And and I think seeing people who look like you die young over and over again can do that to us." Mm-hmm. I think it can it can make us lose hope. And even in moments now where I be feeling so angry, especially like in response to these kind of things, losing people. It's valid. Even um when it's okay. It's okay. when the 88 had got, got um denied. Yeah. Bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That shit make me want to gangbang for real. That was the only thing that came to my mind. Like it's just and it's not that I wanted to hurt the quote-unquote enemies in my hood, they're black people just like me. I have nothing against them. Mm. But something about taking on that posture, mm. the tattoos on the face, the gun, the like fuck everybody nature of it mm. is, is, is just like to bite back okay, at yeah. society treating us that way. And us having to lose, lose our people, lose our opportunities, lose our mm-hmm. dreams mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. often. It's like, all right, bet. Like that Whew. something about taking on that posture of heart of violence is like, just a way to have dignity when you've been treated like the enemy. Mm. I'm honestly really, like, proud of you and, and happy that, like, you're expressing your grief, even right now. Like, and just, like, breathing and living into that because it's like, it ha- like you said, it has to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. Like, it has to be seen. Appreciate you. Man, every nigga that doesn't snap and go on a mass murdering spree is a miracle, you know? Mm. Mm. It's like every one of us that doesn't commit murder, you know what I mean? Not that those of us who do are not a miracle, but every one of us that doesn't absolutely snap under the immense psychological pressure and terrorism of living inside of white supremacy is really a miracle. Mm. I believe in the practice of my life. Grief is intrinsically linked to abolition because adopting an abolitionist mindset is me developing the necessary skill set to not manifest my grief into revenge Mm. and not manifest my grief into punishment to the world, you know, for the pain Mm. that I feel. You know what I'm saying? That's the whole practice for me almost, you know, as much of it. It's like I have this weight upon me that I've had my whole life, you know, in my understanding of my ancestry and my psyche now, I really trace a lot of that to being of a dominated, colonized, whipped and beaten people, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and really adopting abolition as a doctrine and as a way of life is me learning to move with love regardless of the hate that's been thrown at me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like we talk about all the time, abolition isn't just about what we're getting rid of. It's about what we're building. And what abolition calls us to build is systems and cultural practices to hold grief because 
you know, in abolition, we understand that our health as individuals and the health of our community needs to be maintained every day. We can't just assume everything's okay until there's a crisis and then use violence to get rid of the crisis. That's what this system does. That's exactly. what the punishment system does. Like zero Ab- context. Right, yeah. right. And abolition is all about how do we maintain healthy cells and healthy communities so that we don't have crises? And even when we do, how do we use those crises to restore health to ourselves and to our communities to the best way possible? I just want to say, like, my heart goes out to every single person who has shared their story on this show Mm -hmm. um, that's directly related to loss of people, loss of innocence, loss of, you know, belief in oneself. Like, there's been so much grieving that we've done on this show, Mm -hmm. talking about grief, talking about death. This show is a healthy place for grief, I think. Every single incarcerated guest we have had is, in a way, processing grief because to be incarcerated is to wake up in grief every day. Nobody wants to wake up in prison. So every single day you wake up, you are grieving that day. You were grieving the day that just passed that you could have been out with your community and your family that you weren't and you're not getting that day back. There's no matter what. Yeah, so I've heard people say like, you can be the wokest person in the world, like incarcerated or not, like, but you cannot get well in a cell. Yeah, so grateful for the guests that we've had and so grateful for the guests that we have today. You know where I've found true rehabilitation? (laughs) (laughs) Through Mustafa's album, Mm. When Smoke Rises, we have both been healing to that album. Absolutely. Um, And I'm I'm super excited to have Mustafa on this show. Yeah. I mean, he's, um, I've never heard music that dealt with grief in the way that When Smoke Rises deals with grief. And when the album came out, it's the only album I listened to for like three months straight. Um... Because I just found my lost loved ones in that album. I, I, I saw my dad in that album. I, I saw my best friend Doey in that album, you know? And I'm so honored that we get to talk to Uule, who lost his brother and is calling from prison. Um, just so generous to be able to share his, his story with us. And, and I'm really grateful that we get to, to hear it and grow from it. Up next is our conversation with Mustafa the Poet. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. We are back. This is Abolition X, where we bring abolition to the culture, and we are so excited to be here with yes. our good friend Mustafa Also known as Mustafa the Poet. He's a singer, songwriter, and poet from Regent Park in Toronto, Canada. He has written songs with Daniel Caesar and honestly, too many people to even name. His debut EP, When Smoke Rises, came out last year and is a beautiful journey through his grief for his friends Ali and Smoke Dog, as well as the Regent Park community where they all grew up. What's up, Mustafa? What's up, man? How you guys feeling? Mustafa! 
It's so amazing to have you here on the show. Yes. Um, no, it's it's uh, it's an honor to be here. Honestly, I'm I'm a fan of the show. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Well, we are obviously huge fans of your work and just. I mean, I feel like fans is not even like the word, but it's just like, I just feel in community with your work. Oh, wow. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I just feel like your work has become its own personification of a place where I can go to feel things that are often very private, very sensitive. I have like a vivid memory of like, you know, listening to your songs and your voice. And I just feel like you have a great talent of like stepping back to let those sacred moments happen. Wow. No, that means a lot to me. And that might have been one of uh, the fondest compliments I received around my work, which is... Oh, shit, right now? Yeah, right now. Ah! <laughs> no, no for, no, no. for you to say that um, you feel that, like, you're in community mm. with the music that I'm making and and all that I've, I try to do through the songs is cultivate community. So that means a great deal to me. I appreciate that. Man, well, thank you so much for for being here. And we want to know, like, you know, where some of your life has taken you to get to where you are today. And, you know, today we're talking about grief. We're talking about each of our processes. And it's been an emotional conversation. Mm -hmm. And as much as it does bring us up and down, like, I think it's important that we just continue to, you know, excavate what grief looks like. The journey never ends, you know, for grief. So I think for me, I just, I try to continue to look at the way in which it arrives to me mm-hmm. every single day or every month or every year at the anniversaries of the people that I lost. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just, uh, the worst thing that I can do is try to shape it in one particular way without allowing it to reform itself. Because mm. the moment that I try to solidify it in one space, and obviously with the journey of my heart, it's not where it was then. It's like, it's it just requires a different kind of process, a different kind of grieving. And so I'm just trying to give myself the vastness of the array of experiences that I could have within grief, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, yes. and it's hard sometimes because you're like, you know, you just want to subscribe to one way, you know, mm-hmm. and continue in that way. But it's never that way, you know, with loss. Yeah, actually today is the fifth anniversary of my best friend passing. Mm. And yeah, it's wild that this is the day we're having this conversation. It's wild that it's happening during Ramadan. He was North African. He was Muslim. Um, And uh, today, the grief for me feels different. It just feels like a desire to repair. Sometimes it looks like fucking crying. Sometimes it looks like just playing your album over and over and over. Sometimes it looks like today I feel really good. But I'd love to just get some background on your story, Mustafa. I feel like when we're talking about grief, we're talking about generations. Like, could we just start with your family and and why they came, of all places, from Sudan to Toronto, to Regent Park? Um, I mean, yeah, it's all the cliches. You know, I had born Nubian parents that, uh, and my father was ambitious. You know, he went to Dubai first and he just wanted to give himself and our family the greatest opportunity at like a life and and that dreaming obviously I don't think he imagined that that's what he would be offering us but that is in turn what we received was the mm-hmm. gift of being able to dream or think beyond survival and that's what he wanted so he arrived in Canada but my father and mother were adamant about like making the home feel like it was Sudan and making mm. the living room. We had like a ultasala, which is like the, the room for prayer. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and so that was like, even though we didn't have many rooms in the household, it's like, it was like that, like a room that could have been a room for two of my siblings to sleep mm-hmm. in became a room for prayer. And it was like, I think that that was like maybe the earliest look at sacrifice that I ever got, you know. Mm. We ended up Regent Park. I, my entire life was in Regent Park, you know. So before or after that, there was like not much. And my, my father and I don't really speak much on his own grief. Like his his parents both died very suddenly, mm. you know. But he never speaks about that, you know. And it's just, you know, even at the passing of his brother, like we had one conversation and then he decided he didn't want to speak about it again, you know. Mm. That actually maybe is the reason that I speak about grief so often. Because uh, those conversations were missing in my household, mm. that I just had a burning desire to like spell it out in my own life. And when I was experiencing it, I didn't want to deal with it with that same kind of silence, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't want to repeat that silence again. And I think that that's, that's the responsibility we have, you know, that we have like that there is generational progression, you know? Mm. That my father, you know, he moves from a place where he had to where from survival yes. to like me being able to be in a space where I can even explore grief yeah. and in all its shortcomings and, mm. and and in all of its glory and also be able to explore what my life can look like outside of having to put food on the table and whatnot. I also just want to say for the audience, if folks don't know, Regent Park is the trenches. <laughs> the way the community violence goes back and forth there is like a way that I think a lot of people in the U.S. don't know it goes down like that in Canada. Yeah. What was it like navigating that as a child? You know, I think for a lot of it, you're an autopilot. You know, it's just Mm -hmm. like it's a happening and there's something about shared experience that makes it easier to process, you know, and Mm -hmm. everyone in my classroom or all of my neighbors were kind of sharing in that confusion and in that processing with me, you know, and, mm-hmm. and alongside me. Like, I didn't even realize that I was poor, like, until maybe I was in high school, mm-hmm. you know, because, like, my entire life, I was around the people that that were dealing with the same level of paucity that I was. And so, I think when it came to violence, that was the same kind of a thing. I, I quickly became normalized and not only in my in my household, but amongst my friends and amongst my family. And so it, it was never looked at as alien. Mm-hmm. Right. If anything, the person that didn't experience it at all and the person that was from outside of Regent Park was alien to us, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that that was also a way in which the community survived because it's like there was no space or time or efforts or resources to look at it and to assess it and to pull it from the ground. Because what were we going to do with it once we put the light on it? It's like we didn't even know what to do with it Yeah, had we had the opportunity to do that. So mm-hmm. it was best that it was uh, left unspoken about, you know? Mm. And in a lot of ways, like, I, I understood that. Mm-hmm. So like, I think for many deaths and for many experiences and for much of the violence, you know, you just you just rolled with the punches, you know? You just kept walking and moving through it as best you could. Mm. Mustafa, would you be comfortable just talking about who Ali and Smoke Dog were and where did you meet them? How did you all become friends? Yeah, um, I mean, I met Smokey when I was maybe 11 years old and uh, we went, 
we at the time were in different schools. And I remember going there during my lunch break just to see what was happening in their playground. And, you know, Smoke Talk was very popular in that school. Like, you know, he played basketball really well. His, his older brothers were incredibly popular as well. So, like, everyone was, like, more or less familiar with him. Mm. And then eventually I ended up going to that school for grade 7 and grade 8. And Ali, I probably met him when I was 8 years old. And he was Sudanese like me. So, like, um, obviously, like, the diasporas, they find their way to each other very quickly. Mm. Mm. And Regent Park is, like, a... It's just like a tapestry of, you know, of diaspora. It's, uh, you know, over 70 languages are spoken in Regent Park. Wow. And I think that Regent Park does an effective job of having a gateway to what that home once felt like, you know, mm. or the home you had to escape or abandon or leave for a better moment. But Smokey and Ali in a lot of ways were, were very warm people. You know, it's mm. like, you know, I think that a lot of times you know, people feel the need to, I guess they try to gloss over maybe the reality of some people's lives mm -hmm. when they pass away, which is, I mean, a, a natural thing to do because mm -hmm. like you only want to acknowledge the good. But when I think about Smokey and Ali, even outside of, you know, my desire to only remember them mm -hmm. in their beauty, it's like they, they were that, you know, in a lot of ways. It's like, it's how most people that knew them would recall them, you know, mm -hmm. if not everyone. And I think that that's why I had such a responsibility to preserve that, you know. Mm -hmm. and I think that as much as my record is about grief, it's also about, about, love. about love and it's about the preservation of of beauty and it's a preservation mm -hmm. of their beauty mm -hmm. because I think that with every video and article that reached the internet or reached us or reached like, you know, the newsstands, their beauty was being taken from them. Mm. The truth is, is that, you know, now with the kind of the rise of like mentioning the dead in songs, you know what I mean? Obviously it began in Chicago and it's just kind of spread like wildfire in inner city communities all over the world. Like, you know, it's it's very possible that I'll hear the names of my friends on other people's records, you know, trying to like, you know, deface them or just mm -hmm. undermine their existence wow. or or their life or or the weight of, of the loss. Mm -hmm. And we can go on forever about why that is or why people feel the need to do that. And that's also linked to their own grieving. I, I don't know. It's like for a lot of people, it's... Um, it feels brave, you know, and it feels mm. it feels courageous to be able to do that. And obviously, for me, it's like it's like couldn't be more cowardly than right. to mention someone. There's mm -hmm. a lot of people from other communities that were at war with Regent Park that sp spoke poorly about my dead friends that are that are dead now that I would never speak poorly about because I know that the moment that they pass. They are no longer of that political warfare. Mm. And I have to start thinking about their families and right, like, right. you know, and all that surrounds them, like the universe that surrounds them right. that shouldn't be implicated further than losing them. Yes. That losing them should be enough of a burden for them to carry for yes. the rest of their lives, you know? Mm. And I think that even like conventionally in war, you honor the dead as well. Like that was never a thing to like, you know, to mock the dead. It was like, once a war is over, once people that have passed, it's like you just let the dead rest alone mm. without that kind of extra layer of uh, suffering, you know? Yeah. So I think that for me, that was another reason that I felt the need to speak about them. But yeah, they were really beautiful people. They really made you feel special when you were in the room. My friend spoke to me and said, like, you know, you know, Smokey had this kind of a 
you just felt um, this urge to to do good for him, you know? Mm. Just by his presence. Like, you wanted to be there for him. You wanted to be present for him without him even having requested anything from you, you know? There's a line in Ali, your song, where I feel like that's my impression of him, is where you say, like, you know, our hearts were at their fullest. Yeah. And I think even in life, like, we, we think about love and we think about our full hearts. Yeah. But when I heard that line, I got caught in this little infinity that you created where I just saw two little boys fully expressing themselves to each other and confiding in one another. And I feel like I was able to, like, access a piece of, like, that type of joy, that type of trust. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's on the other side of the pain and the hurt and the loss. It's like, it is so great because those moments are so real. So it's not about just like glossing over all the, the, the struggles that were also present, but it's like, because that is so great. It's You know what I mean? Like, it's just the stakes get higher when the love is realer. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and for me, it's like, what Ali was, it was like his heart was bigger than his body. It was like mm-hmm. he he walked into the room and that's all you've seen in him. Like whatever it is that he was feeling, you were going to receive it just from the way in which he carried himself. Mm-hmm. And I think that another reason that I wrote these songs was also because, you know, people like that don't tend to survive mm-hmm. in communities like Regent Park. I think had they not had access to that kind of grace and to that kind of empathy, I think they'd still be alive. And wow. I'm a I'm a firm believer in like predestination, you know, and and I know that it was written that they passed. But it's so important to look at these necropolitical states that we live in, you know, that it's like that it's so calculated the uses of socioeconomic power to dictate how some people must live and some people must die in mm-hmm. communities like ours. And Damn. and the truth is, is that, you know, the more access you have to your humanity and to your empathy, then the more vulnerable you become in a community like Regent Park. And so when, I, when I'm thinking about not discussing grief or like not opening, you know, the possibilities of therapy up and you know, not accessing, you know, your heart in a particular way. All of those things are ways in which people have survived lifetimes Mm -hmm. in our community. You find often in the hood, the person that you think is going to die never dies. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter what hood you go to, it's like, it's always the one guy where you're like, damn, like, this guy's still around? Like, he's still alive? Like, that's Mm -hmm. crazy. The most turned up, extra Yeah, yeah. But he's figured out how to get to that. But it's because... It's that very thing that confuses us that has mm-hmm. kept them alive, mm-hmm. you know? That they had to match the energy of the system that they were born into. Right. And move with the same kind of callousness and, you know, and weight and darkness as that system as well. And when you're able to level with it in that way mm-hmm. and become a mirror of it, then you could potentially survive it. But when you're trying to fight it with like a kind of light or with a kind of truth, it's like that's not actually how it was built to yeah. be navigated. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know? It reminds me a lot of, of incarceration in that way too. It's easier to sit back and just do time and be of the system that is, surrounds you than it mm. is to live with hope and to live with your your love showing and your heart showing as as you um move through 
a space of, of death like that. Absolutely. And you know, I, I think about like all of our conversations about incarceration and, and what that hope looked like when you were there throughout the years that you were in prison. And it's it was always incredibly inspiring to have conversations with you because the hope that you had while you were in prison was very abstract to me because all the conversations I had with my friends weren't touching on that in any way, you know, and they, they weren't like surrounded by that. And it's like, mm. if anything, there were glimmers of hope that I was able to maybe access and I wanted to like, you know, continually point at when having conversations with them. But it's like, you were like immersed in that kind of hope in a way that I didn't think was even possible. Because again, the prison system is not built for that hope to exist in that cell or mm -hmm. on that range or, you know what I mean, in that cafeteria. Range, a housing section in a Canadian prison. It's like, that's not, it's just it's like completely bereft of that. I, mean, I think the moment that you give it up, you're moving in tandem with the way in which yeah. it was built. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like if a flower blooms in a dark room, would you trust it? Mm -hmm. It's like, wait, what? What mm -hmm. are you on? Exactly. I felt similarly, first when I heard When Smoke Rises and then upon meeting you, that there's a level of hope, love, and seeing people that um, I deeply related with in your music, I feel like Soledad, which is the prison where I did most of my time, like Soledad for us is like Regent Park for you. Mm. I just saw that level of hope in your music. It, it is shocking when you see it. There was something from how the music sounds to what you were saying. And then, you know, the first time I experienced it, I experienced it in video. I saw the Hearst video. Yeah. So to see you singing this beautiful song, this folk song, Hard, hard though. Yeah, with all these dudes like just like throwing up signs and like dudes got vests on and like I was like, oh, this dude gets it. Like that you we yes. could I could see and feel the hope and the love that you had even in, in a place that was not designed to foster that. What was your hopes for When Smoke Rises? You know, when I first wrote the record and recorded it and we listened back to the entire thing, I told my manager, I'm like, oh, I don't think I want to release this record, you know, into the world. And he was completely fine with it. He's like, he's like, I understand. He's like, is there a reason? I was like, honestly, I'm like, I don't know if I could survive the release of a record like this. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't even just about myself surviving it, but I didn't know if my community would survive the release of that record. Mm -hmm. Because again, with the way in which we moved through grief, that release and those songs would be potentially like a form of violence against that process. Mm. It would be incredibly disruptive. And I think that obviously mm. disruption is necessary. But I said, will it be disruptive in a beneficial way to my community? Will that disruption then lead to a therapy? Will that disruption then lead to an actualization of something that'll help them grow? Yeah. I didn't know. I yeah. didn't know that. And then also I was thinking about all the ways in which other communities that were warring with my community have tried to, you know, mock us mm -hmm. for the losses that we've experienced. And so here I am, you know, wow. singing and speaking and expressing, yes. you know what I mean, the sorrow of losing some of my friends. 
And would that be weaponized against myself and against my community? And how will that level of disruption affect the way that they're grieving as well? Yeah, yeah. And so I had to consider those things because it was already happening. Mm-hmm. And I think some of my fears, they materialized. Yeah. But the good of it, I didn't really anticipate. Like the way in which it helped my community and like gathering with my community at Massey Hall. Massey Hall is a historical music venue in Toronto. And, you know, having like, you know, thousands of people sit amongst me to just listen to these songs and more than myself on that stage I was thinking about what it meant for Ali's mom and Smokey's Mm -hmm. mom to be in that crowd and to see people gather in a kind of service for their sons because I remember at the beginning when I released Stay Alive I see you know, people that we're warring with kind of just even mock the sentiment of stay alive. It's like Mm. people's entire lives are this war, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like you lose one person and it's like, and we all dedicate to the people that we lost in different ways. And for that kid that's in Toronto that, that thinks he hates me, you know? That hate and the way in which he responds to whatever I do online is his dedication, Mm -hmm. you know? And I just hope that at some point, you know, we can all move towards a a, a dedication that actually honors the people that we lost, you know. Mm. But I think until then, all that I could do is try to be a reference point for not just only my community, but also communities that have never seen my community as home to them, you know, or or as a place that they could ever enter, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. That when, like, my work can reach even those people that I know that it's uh, truly transcended politics. Ooh. Pray, I pray so. I pray so. And I've seen it. I've seen it happen at least amongst the people I know. Like, I've shared your EP with so many people who are losing folks and um, it's been healing for them. It's been healing for us. Yeah, yeah. And where does Ule fit into your story and the story of Regent Park. Being Smoke Talk's older brother, he was a reference point in the community. Mm. You know, everyone kind of looked towards him when someone would pass away or when people wanted to gather without contention mm. or or tension. And he was kind to everyone in the community. You know, I, I remember from when I was young, like I remember like being just maybe nine years old and and seeing him on an electric bike, you know, which is like, which was to me like... The coolest thing. Yeah, it was like, <laughs> he was like almost like a superhero, you know, because I didn't even think that that was possible. Mm. I remember Regent Park was my entire universe. Like that was my world. So yeah. it's like anything happening in Regent Park was my first discovery of it, mm. you know? It's like, and also anything happening outside of Regent Park, I never considered because Mm. it wasn't my world, Mm -hmm. you know? It mattered to me if someone born in that community that was of that community was doing it because then it was possible. Mm. But outside of that, it felt like I was watching it on a screen, Mm -hmm. you know? It felt like a movie screen, anything happening outside of Regent Park. I don't think that experience I was having with things happening outside of Regent Park was a thing that made me feel small in any way. You know, it wasn't a thing that made me feel self-conscious either. I just 
came to terms quickly that those things were not for me and they were not of me. And most of my inspiration came from seeing people that looked and felt and experienced like me. Mm -hmm. It was like kind of one of the first people that was like, you know, kind of embodied a kind of courage and a bravery and truth and power that I didn't see prior to him, maybe. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of courage and that power was important because it's the way that um, we stayed afloat. Mm. And it's the way that we kept our heads above water. And I think I, I didn't really have that when I was young because I was like, oh, it was always deeply emotional and sensitive. And it took me time to gather my words and any kind of violence felt heavy on me. So I think uh, watching how he dealt with situations and the way he carried himself and the way in which he could walk into any room alone um, as if he was like, he was like an army on his own. Mm. And that to me was inspiring. And it was it was critical to just see that, you know, and to know that something or someone like that can exist in Regent Park and that, and that I could be that, you know, one day. Mm. Can you talk about how like police presence colored like your experience in Regent Park and your like feelings of grief? Absolutely. I think I was incredibly young when Alwi al-Nadir, Allah was murdered by a police officer. Alwi Al-Nadir was an 18-year-old senior in high school who was killed by the Toronto police on Halloween night in 2007. And the officer is walking today, obviously was not penalized in any, in any way. And I watched my community go out into the streets and protest and make complaints. And for the first time ever, actually, I think... I see my community mobilize in such a gratifying way. Hmm. And you could imagine what it's like for me to be 11 years old and see the first ever mobilization of community result in nothing. Hmm. <laughs> and I think in a lot of ways, Damn. that shapes the way we understand community. We understand, you know, policing systems mm. and we understand or acquire hope because I think from that point forward a lot of people in my community they kind of gave up yeah. their proximity to hope mm -hmm. or the way in which they held it right. or even like their acknowledgement of it yeah. was maybe no longer after that and I think Ooh. I remember what that hopelessness felt like after those countless calls and protests and videos and all for them to just kind of look at the community and just remind us that they didn't care for the life that we lost, you know? If I start to think about any of these policing systems as systems that are going to protect us in any way, then it'll take me decades to move through what I need to move through with mm. my community, you know? And I, and, I, and I can't afford that because I don't have time. I don't have time to sit with any, you know, police officers. Yeah. A part of me also feels like if I sit with you all and I level with you, then I have normalized mm. some of the atrocities that have happened as a result of your existence, right. you know? So you haven't taken accountability 
for the abuse of power, for the murders of friends. And also it's just like these officers are part of systems that are designed to murder us. They are designed to watch us enter the prison system. And I don't think that it's just like there is rehabilitation that works through policing systems. You know, it's like I've never seen any of my friends come back home and speak to, you know, their parole officers and enjoy those conversations, you know? Like those parole officers never have conversations with them about reintegration, you know what I mean? The emotional reintegration or like, you know, or like the familial reintegration. The only thing that they are discussing and the only conversations they're having is about the violations of parole. Exactly. And you know that just with like the little things that are set in place, which is that if you know, if you get shot while you're on parole, you have to go back to prison in fear of you retaliating. And it just goes to show you that it's just like, that they're not particularly interested in the ways that you are surviving it as much as they are concerned with how you are going to react to it. Yeah. Yeah. And and the criminality in that assumption. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And the criminality in all of the assumptions of every conversation that you have. When I went to prison, I remember leaving and the, the officer speaking about how I was going to return and, yeah. Like you know, I'll, you know, speaking about how he'll see me, he'll see me very soon, and Ugh. and it's I've, like I feel like I've seen and I've felt and I've tasted that sentiment from COs like in prison visits. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Mustafa. Um, I'm still kind of taken aback by one of the things you said when you said when we engage with this system, it stops us from being able to actually heal with our community. I think about there are so many people who show up to parole hearings 15, 20, 30, 40 years after their loved one was killed and they're still hurting the same. And I think that's a systemic failure. Every time we're hoping that the system harming someone else is going to give us healing, we're actually delaying our healing. I've never thought about that before. I really appreciate you pointing that out. And of course, really appreciate Oule being down to call from prison. That's really special. We've never done this on the show before where we're able to talk to two people who know each other. One is inside, one is out. So just big appreciation to both of you for being down to share your experience with us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I am as well. Let's do it. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Mustafa and be joined by Ule, who lost his younger brother, Smoke Dog, Mustafa's friend. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. What's up, Ule? Thank you so much for calling in. Ule. How are you guys doing today? 
We're doing yeah. good. We're doing good. We've been having some, you know, some necessary conversations and it just feels good to be in community with you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. You know, it's just another day. I'm just taking it easy. Well, let's get into it. Um, Ule, can you tell us how you met Mustafa? Wow. Honestly, I can't tell you the day that I met him. I just always remember seeing him always. <laughs> hmm. I can't tell you the exact day I met him. I've been known him forever, you know? Uh-huh. No, it's true. But you know, the thing is, is that like, I think I remember when I met him more than he'd remember when he met me because it's like, okay. because obviously I was, I was much younger than him and he was already really popular in Regent Park. So, you know, by the time I was seeing him, I was just another kid in the community. Yeah. And he was already like, you know, a, like a reference point and, and a hero to a lot of the young kids in the community. So that? I remember the first time I met him, I seen him on an electric bike in the right. back of the Bonos, which is like a part of the community. You know, the community's kind of small, you know, but, uh, but I seen him there, you know, he had some fresh kicks on, you know, he's like, you know, fresh track suit, you know. Mm-hmm. Hey, <laughs> it's giving early 2000s. <laughs> <laughs> so Ule we heard a little bit from Mustafa like what Regent Park meant to him and I want to know like what does that community mean to you yeah honestly the community for me opportunity it was a fun environment you see oh. there used to be a lot of movies in our neighborhood so we knew that obviously where we were was a special place you know what I mean so you could go as far back to you got paid in full that was filmed over there you got wow. four oh, wow. brothers you know what I mean? You got all types of stuff. That Even a bit of a Get Rich or Die trying to shot over there, too. Wow. Because yeah. it has such of that, like, project look, like how projects in the in the northeast of the country look, like New York, Harlem. Exactly. For the most part, in the uh, region, kind of looked like, uh, in the north side, it looked like uh, an American New York look. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the easiest upbringings, but honestly, it was... It was hard. It wasn't easy. I've been through a lot of things, falsely accused for a lot of things and ongoing situations. So my brother's been through it too. So it's, it's been hard. And I have another younger brother that actually passed away too. So we see different angles of what this place has to offer too, right? I seen the good and the bad. Mm. Yeah, facts, man. I think that like in a lot of ways, it's like when it comes to the good and the bad, people in our community, they don't really know how to deal with it. And even for myself, sometimes, like, people will look to me and think that I know how to deal with it. But then sometimes I'm looking to Wule and I'm thinking, maybe he knows how to deal with it. Mm. You know, and it's like, and I realize that maybe there's just not one way to deal with it. But like, I guess the question I have, because I ask this to myself all the time, is like, how do you deal with loss you know like for, like for me when I think about it I think about prayer obviously like you know you know I was in Mecca recently and being able to go back to Mecca that means a great deal to me but like I'm actually very curious for you Awule like what does it feel like for you like how do you deal with loss you know well with loss is prayer prayer is number one we have to pray mm. you know because honestly the only thing that could uplift you is if you is, is a lot in yourself you know so that's for me because I have belief because there may be some people without belief, but that's what I believe. Like I have brothers that look up to me. I have people that are looking up to me in the community that depend on us. You know, you always have to be a leader. You can't be following and you have to lead them by example, right? So that's what we try to do. It's like I was telling them that like, Awudi is like an army on his own when he walks into a room, you know? And the thing is, is I'm now remembering at like, 
a friend of ours funeral, I was incredibly emotional. And I remember you were, you were just telling me, to, yo, keep composed, you know, like, mm. you know, like, and, and, and I, I'll never forget it. Cause I remember I was crying and I, and I actually didn't know because I was, I don't know. I was just so confused that everything that was happening and I was exhausted by what we were experiencing. But I remember like you just being kind of like a pillar of strength in that time. And you had some of the closest and deepest relationships with some of the people that we lost. And so it reminded us that it was possible to stay composed and to stay gracious in moments like that and stay level-headed. And you're like, we have to stay strong. We have nothing else. Mm -hmm. Mm. And I think about that all the time because I'm like, it's true. Like we don't have anything else. All we have is our strength in a lot of, and like the strength of our heart, the strength of how, we view our futures and how we view the the situation, you know? And I appreciate that, bro. I appreciate that. And what I want for myself, I want for each and every one of my brothers. And that's how it's supposed to be. It ain't an easy thing for, for a mother, a loved one, anybody to lose somebody. And I know it's hard, you know? Mm-hmm. I've seen people lose people and I never really got the full understanding of how deep it gets because I've lost friends and it hurt me, cut me really deep. But, you know, I lost a brother as well. And when I lost my brother, it cut me deep just to see how my mother has to go through. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's not easy, you know? The loss of my bro, the process, the process is still going. It's just something that doesn't go away. It's like there's a void in your heart. There's something that will always be missing, you know? Because mm-hmm. when you know them their whole lives, do you remember their first day that they came home and all these things? You're, you're not going to forget these moments and you never get them back again either, right? Right. And I feel like that's why everybody takes it in their own way and deals with it in their own way, you know? Yeah. I can't I, I tell you to do it exactly how I would handle it because we're not the same people, right? That right. part. Honestly, he touched a lot of great parts, poet, but um, my brother was a good young man, you know? He was always, he always wanted better. He never settled for less. He was always, a, he's a leader, like, just like Poet said. He's a very genuine young man, too. He was, he was really genuine. Very genuine. Anything, anything that he did, he put his all into it. We don't, we don't ever put fifty percent to anything that we do. Mm-hmm. You know. Do you have any like rituals that you do to honor his life within your life? Oh yeah, for sure. I pray for him every time. I always ask the Lord to shine, shine light on his grave and make there be space and make him make it to the highest level of heaven. Mm. Of Jannah, inshallah. That's what I do every day for my brother. Inshallah. Wow, that's beautiful. It's the greatest ritual, man. Yeah. And Ule, have you heard Mustafa's project? Have you heard When Smoke Rises? Yeah, I've heard it. I've heard it. I've heard some of it. Everybody keeps going crazy for it, actually. When I honestly, there used to be uh, guards and shit used to be coming up to me telling me about his project. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yo, that's definitely not my audience, but shit, man. (laughs) I hate to say that would be the CEO I would be. (laughs) Bro, like, honestly, man, they... They're coming up to me telling me how amazing my boy is. Yo, your boy, wow. how do you guys keep him so how's he so grounded? How's he he's like they know a lot about him, right? Because he's he's not a simple guy. This guy's this guy is the guy that we, we he's a goat. Like for real. He's he's very modest and humble with it, but he's a goat and we love him. We'll do anything for this nah, guy. Nah, bro, I, mean? I love I you too, him. man. I'll do anything for you too, man. Well, I miss you, man. This is crazy to have this conversation in this way. For real, for real. This is just this is me being honest. Like you guys are just getting honesty on 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 a recording. Like you know what I mean. That's about it. We appreciate you. And for me, it's like you know, it's funny. Like I, I've I'm making all these recordings and sampling the voices of like Ali and Smoke and mm-hmm. and whatever I could find of like of our brothers and of Capo and and I realized 
that I wanted to record it because recordings are forever. Like you look at the actual definition of a record, a record is a moment in time. And so as a recording artist, like I actually have just have a responsibility to preserve moments in time. And in a lot of ways, even this conversation to me is a moment in time. And it's important Mm -hmm. that we, that we remember this, that we preserve this. Like you remember like the love that we share like the care that we share for each other and for our community and for the brothers that we have and the brothers that we lost and the brothers that will return to us, you know, inshallah, you know? And and I think that it's just so important that like, as we go through different chapters of our lives, we have recordings that signify what those chapters felt like. And I'm just, this one felt like a a really beautiful tribute to what this chapter feels like right now, bro. Hmm. Ashe. I've got one last question for y'all, both of you all, if, if you'd want to share. What does your community need? What does Regent Park need for healing? Oh, man, that's like, there's so much, you know, you think about like Regent Park being the largest housing project in Canada. Regent Park is the largest and oldest housing project in Canada with a population of approximately 11,000 people. Like Awule was saying earlier, each person is going to have a different process, mm-hmm. you know? And each person is going to deal with, you know, the violence and the loss and the confusion differently. And so because each person is dealing with it differently, there's going to be a different process for their healing as well. Mm-hmm. But I think one thing that I think is important is support for families that are dealing with losses by way of violence or by way of like, you know, systems that mm-hmm. it, it's like, you know, whether they're losing them to a prison system or whether they're losing them by way of death. I think a lot of parents are left on islands where they don't know how to deal with that mourning or that grief. Like they have to deal with like the burial and they have to deal with all the logistics around death without having an opportunity to understand how their mental health has been compromised as a result of their son or daughter's passing. Right. And I would love to see more systems in place that support the kids and the mothers and even the aunts and uncles and siblings of those victims. Because for as long as they're carrying it, they're going to give that to the people that come after them. And then that cycle continues, you know? Mm -hmm. The only way for that cycle... To, to end is when the people that are surrounding those victims are beginning to heal. Yeah, so new cycles right. can start in place of those like negative cycles and for you to build your own community, your own support systems that will be more sustainable. Exactly. So it's all about sustainability. What do, you th- what do you think about what your community needs for healing? Even thinking about Regent Park, but also where you are right now. Like in general, just I feel like we just need people that, that can listen and not label. Honestly, bars, bars. You have to understand that our communities, like I'm not only speaking for my specific community. I'm just saying the inner city neighborhoods in general. Like the thing about it is they're not confident to go speak to these people. Like you have to understand where we're coming from. We don't trust these people. We don't trust the government. We don't trust society. And it's the way, and you know what I mean? So it's like, there's a blocker between us and them. So we don't have that comfortability to even say certain things, certain things that we can't even express to these people without being labeled. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. All, like, like, it seems to me like in our neighborhoods and 
they're always quick to to, to tell the, the children if they're if they're bad kids at school and they fight or whatever. They don't know if the kids are hungry. Or they don't know what the real problem is. They're just assuming that this kid's a bad kid. And he he needs he needs help and he has ADHD. Mm-hmm. Like you know what I mean. So it's right, like right. they're quick to label these kids, but they're not quick to really listen to them and really figure out what the problem actually is. You know, and that's what I feel. You nice. need to listen. No, that's beautiful, bro. That's facts. To listen and not label. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's the one. Takeaway, right? That's there. the takeaway take for the day. Away. Yeah, and and I think like. Um, grief, like we talked about, can often sometimes feel like one drop of rain coming from the sky. Like, oh, where did that come from? And then other days, <laughs> it can feel like a full downpour. Mm-hmm. Um, and I appreciate you all like having this conversation like together in our little community right here. And for me, it's felt like a mist. Mm-hmm. Kind of like it's been, it's been very refreshing to me to hear us um, talk about grief and the people that we're mourning and the people that we're honoring. So thank you again, Wule, for being on the show today. No, no, no problem. I appreciate you guys having me. I appreciate it. Yes, and thank you too, Mustafa. No, thank you. And thank you, Ule, for being uh, for being on with us, bro. It means a great deal to me. I'm really glad that it happened, you know. Sure. You know, I appreciate you guys having us. At least, you know, we're in a position to not make anybody control our narrative. You know, understand what I'm saying? That exactly. Part. Exactly. I mean, yeah, exactly. Here That's all we're trying to do. This is what we're here. This is why we're here. You know, it's like just to make sure that the narrative is not being overtaken by anybody else, you know? And that's why that's why I'm still speaking. That's why I'm still singing. That's why I'm still writing. Because if I don't, someone else is going to be writing on my behalf and I can't afford that. Let's go. Thank y'all so much for listening. This is Abolition X. Thank y'all so much for listening. Big thank you to Mustafa and Uule for sharing with us so generously. Before you go, make sure you check out our show notes so you can hear Mustafa's music and dive deeper into what we're thinking around grief and abolition. Also, if you haven't already, hit that follow button, hit that bell so you never miss an episode of Abolition X. This is, in fact, our last episode of the season, but we will be back with another season, so make sure you hit that bell. And if you're a new listener, go back and check out our earlier episodes. Thank you all for challenging yourselves. Yes. Thank you for being in this work with us. And take care of yourselves. Be kind to yourselves. Abolition will involve strong boundaries and early bedtimes and lots of water. (laughs) So do what you got to do to stay true, to stay in it. And we will see you on the next season. Yeah. And I know this is actually a very new conversation for a lot of people who are coming to the show. So thank you also just for being open Mm -hmm. to trying something new. We, We get to invent the world that we live in. So stay tapped in because we will be back with more abolitionist conversations, bringing abolition to the culture later this year. Stay tuned. Abolition X is a Spotify original podcast. Our creative producers are Miguel Contreras, Candice Manriquez-Ren, Courtney Gilbert, and Brandon Sharp. Our executive producers are Gina Delvac and Corinne Gilliard. Editing by Miguel Contreras and Michael Hardman. Sound design and mixing also by Michael Hardman. Original music by Vic Mensa. Hey. Me, Indigo Mateo. Hey. Him, Richie Resita. Hey. And April K. Hey. And special thanks to Leslie Guam, Robert Adler, Casey Simonson, and Hugo Salguero. Our voiceover artist is Tara Cease. 
And also, we want to give a shout out to some of the other folks who are a part of the Abolition X family who've helped us out so much this season. They are Nandi Mason, Bree Bird, and Yasmin Afifi. Also, Kimu Alolia, Bianca Garwood, and Sue Liu. Special thanks to Teresa Ganchore, Sarah Gaynor, and Katie McEwen. We're your hosts, Indigo Mateo, Richie Resita, and Vic Mensa. This call on your telephone number will not be, be monitored or recorded. Go live your free ass lives. Establish next. Now I feel like I'm warmed up. I don't feel like I, I feel like the first 20 to 15 minutes I wasn't warmed up. <laughs> now I'm warm. I wasn't that warmed up either. I was talking about possums and. <laughs> <laughs> Are you related the possum? <laughs> <laughs>